0: It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Roy Edelson, who is the former executive director of the University of Pennsylvania's Solomon Ash Center for Study of Ethnopolitical Conflict and a past president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. His work focuses on applying psychological knowledge to issues of social justice and political change. His writing has appeared in a variety of scholarly peer-reviewed journals and other outlets, including Including The Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times, and he is the author of a terrific new book called Political Mind Games, How the 1% Manipulate Our Understanding of What's Happening, What's Right, and What's Possible. You can follow Roy Idelson online at RoyIdelson.com and on Twitter at at Roy Eidelson. Roy, welcome to Talk Nation Radio
1: thank you david it 's great to be with you.
0: Great to have you on. Uh, should have had you on before now, but this is a wonderful reason why this is a terrific book, Political mind games um, pe- People do put up with a heck of a lot without rising up and changing those in power. Uh, and I take it you think uh, at least one big reason is that people are lied to
1: I think it 's one of the the really crucial. Reasons. There are others. We know that the one percent uh, has tr- have tremendous control in terms of our politics and influencing our elected officials, and they also uh, have a lot of influence in terms of the mainstream media, in terms of what narratives are promoted and which ones aren't. But I think the biggest or the most the least recognized source of influence is the manipulation that they engage in the psychological appeals that lead us toward division or paralysis, Uh, you know, we far outnumber those with tremendous wealth and power. Uh, But if they can divide us, if they can make us think that uh, change is not possible, if they can persuade us that what they're doing is actually for the common good, it pacifies us. And I think that is that's what happens pretty much all the time. The The, the 1% do
0: have some help, right? Uh, everybody who works in the corporate media and in schools and so forth isn't among the 1%, but are perhaps doing uh, doing their bidding.
1: Yes, right. Yeah. The, and when I say 1%, uh, I'm really focusing on uh, those with tremendous wealth and power who choose, who are self-interested. There are... You know, people uh, with extraordinary wealth who do very good things. Um, I'm focused on those who are out for themselves. And yes, um, they have the resources to get all the help they need from others, unfortunately.
0: So this book, Political Mind Games, uh, is sort of a catalog of types of lies that we're told. Is it is it intended as a as a sort of a guidebook to prepare people to spot lies and not fall for them?
1: Uh, that's exactly what I hope it accomplishes. The uh, you know psychological research, for example, shows that there's a phenomenon called attitude inoculation, and basically. It's like a flu shot. We get a flu shot so that we're exposed to certain antibodies, and as a result, we're better better able to uh, deal with that virus in in the wild, so to speak. And what I'm trying to do is offer uh, psychological inoculation. If we are prepared to recognize the manipulative appeals or the mind games, and we are prepared with counter-arguments to them, then we're less susceptible to be influenced by them. And those who are less susceptible, in a sense, can become the first responders, those who are able to go out and communicate with others, including others who have uh, differing points of view, and try and share the message that we need to, you know, recognize uh, that we're being fooled, that we're being deceived, that we can have Uh, policies that work for everyone instead of the 1%. And my, my research over many years now as a psychologist has led me to identify five areas where we're especially susceptible to manipulation. And those are issues of vulnerability, injustice, distrust, superiority, and helplessness. Those are kind of five templates through which we make sense of the world around us. So if we hear messages that tap into any of those, they can sound true, even though they're a pack of lies. So let's talk about each of those
0: if we have time, or at least a, a, a sample. What, what about vulnerability? What's an example there?
1: Well, the, the basic que- among the basic questions we ask ourselves pretty much every day is, Are we safe? Are the people we care about in harm's way? We want to have an answer to that, and we're not always right in the judgments we make, but whatever judgments we make in that regard influence the actions we take and the policies that we support. So, you know, for example, in in the book, I identify four vulnerability mind games that are used regularly by the 1%. They are... First, it's a dangerous world. This is when we're told that our actions are necessary to protect us from dire threats. This is a basic message when we are being persuaded that we need to invade one country or another. Second, vulnerability appeal that works in the opposite direction is change is dangerous. And what the, the 1% try and do here is convince us that the status quo is what we really want to maintain. They certainly want to maintain the status quo. It's enormously rewarding for them to do so. But they'll argue that change is dangerous in order to push us away from something like Medicare for All or a Green New Deal or higher taxes, uh, any of those areas, a The third of the four vulnerability appeals is it's a false alarm, and this is where uh, those in positions of influence try and tell us that the warnings we're receiving from others, often those uh, who are not in the positions of power, uh, are overblown. This is the basic uh, effort to deny climate change. And the dire consequences. For example, uh, the one percent will tell us it's a false alarm. It's not as big a problem as as they out there are saying. You know, we've always risen to the occasion in the United States. We will figure this out too, and therefore, don't get caught up in in the effort to you know dramatically shift our policies away. From the oil and gas industry, so and the fourth one, fourth vulnerability appeal is will make you sorry. And this one's a little different than the other three, in that, in many ways, it's a it's simply a warning that if you try and interfere with the way things are, with the way those in power want them to be, uh, you'll pay a price and potentially a serious price and that definitely uh we have to take that seriously i mean people uh, th- that scares people away uh often from the uh the collective action that we'll ultimately we will need it's it seems pretty
0: complex in that uh, it's it's not clear that we're Uh, as a population too afraid or insufficiently afraid. I I mean, it, it seems that we're terrified of Muslim terrorists even though they shoot many fewer people than toddlers who find guns lying around the home, and nobody's afraid of toddlers who find guns. We're, you know, we're we're supposed to be afraid of secret cells of Hezbollah in Venezuela that are going to take over the United States and limit our freedoms, but nobody's afraid of nuclear apocalypse. Go ahead and, you know, push push NATO into Eastern Europe and threaten Russia, and that's all cool. I'm not worried. I'm not a coward. It's it, it seems... We need to be afraid in different places than we are being afraid.
1: Um, I agree with you. And those are great examples and and distinctions. And I would think with each one of them, we could look at who benefits from promoting one type of fear versus another. And there are entire industries that rely on certain kind of fear-mongering. So, you know, defense contractors, well, of course, they make money uh, the more we make bombs or, or or drones or whatever it may be. And, and you they're, know, they're. And they're they've trained
0: the, us to call it defense as well. <laughs>
1: that's right. Well, yes, good point. <laughs> um, you know, there, there was a, an incident with a, I mentioned in the book where Jeb Bush, this is a few years ago before he. Uh, failed to become the Republican candidate, talking to a a group of defense contractors. And, you know, whether he intended that everyone, the public would know, uh, I doubt. But he, he basically concluded, you know, invading Iraq turned out to be a pretty good deal. Now, pretty good deal, he was saying, and it's true for, you know, for Lockheed, for Halliburton, for companies like that, um, the whole surveillance state—you uh, know—that we should be afraid of, of uh, you know, hyper afraid of terrorism and Muslims and people who are different. Well, again, there there's a lot of money to be made in that, and uh, there are all kinds of you know homeland security contractors. Uh, They get enormous paydays uh, because Americans hold distrustful or prejudiced uh, or they're different from us views about certain people. That's uh, an example of the the distrust mind games that I also talk about. So, you know, we're uh, and at the same time, you know, if guns kill people, but the the NRA is, is not going to, to push uh, in that direction. Instead, they will turn it around and argue, using a helplessness mind game, that we'll all be helpless if we are not allowed to have any gun we want, and as many of them as we want. And people don't like, understandably, to feel helpless. Now, we wouldn't be helpless, but that doesn't matter. If the if the NRA can tap into our worries about being in a world where we have no control, uh, that's going to be effective. And that's one of the types of arguments that we need to combat by recognizing that it's false and being prepared. We know we're going to hear it. We know that uh, we're going to hear that every time there's a a massacre, whether it be, you know, anywhere in the country.
0: Yeah, that we're speaking with Roy Idelson. The book is Political Mind Games: How the One Percent Manipulate Our Understanding of What's Happening, What's Right, and What's Possible. The jumping from the first down to the fifth category of of lies we're told, the ones about helplessness, seems to suggest that that in fact there's another sense in which people do like feeling helpless, are are accepting of the of absolutely ridiculous claims. That that they have no power to change the world, that, that nonviolent actions have never occurred, there was no civil rights movement, uh, women never, you know, gained the right to vote, or if they did, they did so somehow magically by voting, because that's the one thing you can do, other than sit and whine and moan, mm-hmm. is to vote. Uh, it, it, people seem to me, and this seems more important to me than any other type of lie, the lie that we're powerless to do anything— seems seems very very important and uh, and absolutely ridiculous, but widely accepted.
1: The I think part of why that is, or at least I, and I try and explain it in this way, uh, relates to the psychological phenomenon of status quo bias. Basically, um, we tend to prefer the way the world is to alternatives. That are less familiar to us. There's something, in terms of anxiety, comforting about the familiar, and that can lead us in all kinds of terrible directions in terms of maintaining policies that are, are totally abhorrent and, and destructive. So, uh, one of the helplessness mind games I, I write about is, change is impossible. Uh, message from the one percent being: This is how the world is. It's it can't be changed. We might wish it could be, uh, and they'll go to issues like human nature, as though uh, it's beyond our capability as as people to behave more decently toward those who are less familiar to us. It's it's not true, but when we accept that kind of these circumstances are, are not the creation of powerful people and powerful groups who want us in this position. If we think that, in fact, well, you know, it just, things turned out this way, this is the way things evolved, uh, we're much more accepting of it, and we we don't know who to fight back against. Part of the the way the 1% use helplessness is by denying their own culpability. You know, that the world is this way, not because of what we do, not because of our priorities, which are are self-serving and make us fabulously wealthy. Uh, So don't blame us. And part of collective action, uh, in my view, part of what gives it its power is being able to recognize the target that needs to be addressed, uh, where the problem lies, where the responsibility lies. And there's a way in which uh, we can feel helpless because we're overwhelmed. Uh, We can't figure out, you know, how best to get out of the box we're in. Uh, And again, the the status quo is something the 1%, in this country created and they're going to fight to keep it and they're going to tell us that resistance is futile that uh, there's nothing we can do and you mentioned some great examples of how that's obviously not true the civil rights movement is clear Mm -hmm. on that
0: yeah thousands of examples of resistance is in fact fertile not futile right Uh, Right. but uh, it, it it strikes me that a lot of times through your book and in, in other examples the lies that are told go out of their way to be the exact opposite of the truth uh, that is uh, the minimum wage will hurt people paid the minimum wage here's a here's a better way to help people without giving them any money or uh, we, we need to uh, you know s- s- starve the people of of Venezuela in order to send them aid uh, <laughs> while starving them It uh, is is this an effective way to 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 uh, to fool people?
1: Well, unfortunately, it is, uh, and the message, uh, you know, again, those were excellent examples, but uh, we don't hear that full message. Um, we just hear the part that uh, reinforces the the preferred policy of those those in power. And part of what these mind games do is they trigger our emotions. And once we we start uh, being overly influenced by our emotional reactions, our our reasoning suffers. So um, in terms of vulnerability, if we become fearful, we kind of lose track of how best to assess various risks. In terms of injustice, if we become angry, uh, we have a harder time figuring out uh, where the mistreatment lies and who's responsible for it. Uh, in terms of distrust, when we're suspicious, when we're overwhelmed with kind of uh, doubts about whether someone can be trusted, uh, it's much harder for us to work with them, to collaborate, and and. There's no doubt that societal change is going to depend on, on groups that at times are suspicious of each other for unwarranted reasons coming together and realizing, well, we share much more in common uh, than whatever differences uh, those who want to keep us divided have emphasized. So yeah, it's, I think the message or the problem, what's frustrating about these appeals is that they target concerns we have. And therefore it's as though we immediately accept them as true. And then we have to do the work of figuring out, Oh, wait a minute. It's not true after all, but that immediate sense of, Hmm, that sounds right. Uh, is powerfully effective less so and I guess the point I would emphasize if we're prepared to hear those manipulative appeals and if we recognize where the motivation for them comes from if we know in advance that these are going to be deceptive efforts to protect the 1% and that's why we're hearing them then they're going to have less effect on us, and that's what we need. We need to be able, in a sense, to, to resist the psychological manipulation, just like we need to resist some of the awful policies that we're being faced with.
0: So is so is the best advice to people to be skeptical of what's on television news, to think about who benefits, to think about what's not being talked about or asked, uh, or and, and or is it as important to tell people to go find better, more reliable sources of news and 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 education?
1: I think you need to do both, um, but the motivation for us for the public to find better sources and more reliable sources is to have that skepticism of of much of what's in the mainstream media and obviously outlets like Fox News but at the same time you know one of the challenges is that within the main what I will call the mainstream media are tremendous reporters and journalists doing you know incredible work Taking risks, uh, providing us with accurate information, uh, so you, it really can be tricky to to figure out um, you know who to listen to and who not to. But uh, but one can do that, and there are a lot of alternative outlets uh, that we uh, should turn to more often. And again, if we know. That we're getting, or we suspect that we're getting messages from, in a sense, from on high, from the you know, corporate leaders, um, from politicians who are beholden uh, to the 1%. We should be very, uh, if not cynical, skeptical that they're giving us either an accurate picture or the full picture. Uh, and we just have to be open to, um, challenging those ideas or looking for, for people who have challenged them. In other words, make sure you read or hear about the alternative perspective so that you're in a position to, to make better, better judgments. Uh, and collectively it's, it's, a you know, we need to, we need to be better at critical thinking,
0: you know, and... <laughs> can't say that enough uh, uh Roy Idelson, uh, I don't I don't want to fail to uh acknowledge you as someone who has challenged uh, a particular uh, disastrous way of thinking uh, in the United States in terms of your your opposition to the acceptance of of torture and and the participation of psychologists in torture um, thank you for for that work how How do the lessons of this book uh, apply to people's thinking about torture
1: well Thank you david, for those kind words the It's been a you know part of the, a big part of the past decade for me and colleagues has been fighting uh to eliminate the the war on terror, torture and abuse that we've witnessed, and in particular and uh, painful to to say and acknowledge psychologists and psychology have played a crucial role in in supporting Uh, the torture efforts. Uh, We know that psychologists were were key players in devising programs and maintaining them. uh, Psychological organizations that I think should have been more clearly outspoken against these military policies and protocols were not. And torture, much like uh, the push to war, torture uh, is promoted using the same mind games, you know, and they'll just give one in each of the five categories, just naming them. In vulnerability, we're told it's a dangerous world, as though that means we have to torture. In terms of injustice, we're told we're fighting injustice. That's the mind game, as though that then uh, makes permissible uh, the horrors of waterboarding and, and other things. Uh, in terms of distrust... They're devious and dishonest. So we're told that the people we are mistreating uh, are awful. And, in fact, that wouldn't matter. Torture's wrong regardless. But the evidence doesn't support that position anyway. Almost all of the hundreds of people who were locked up at Guantanamo indefinitely had done nothing. They were not terrorists. They had not participated in any terrorism against the United States. They were just swept up off the battlefields of Afghanistan. Often people were paid bounties to bring them in. The fifth the fourth torture supporting mind games, superiority, pursuing a higher purpose is the appeal. as though even if you have doubts about what we're doing, understand you know that we're on the side of good and morality. And the fifth one is helplessness will all be helpless. The kind of absurd notion that, Torture is the only thing that can keep us safe. And, you know, I've witnessed this. I've been engaged in fighting against this. Um, Fortunately, you know, persistence has paid off. And, you know, as one example, the American Psychological Association has different policies now than it did uh, a decade ago. Uh, Psychologists right now, the APA, does not allow psychologists to... To work at Guantanamo, unless they're working on behalf of a human rights organization or the military personnel. So, but it's that is a constant battle, and we know that Trump, uh, you know, wants to keep Guantanamo open. He wants to expand it. He wants to bring new prisoners there. It's going to be an ongoing ongoing struggle well there are many ongoing
0: struggles that can be aided by this book which we could go on about for hours but we're out of time you're going to have to pick up a copy and read it it's called political mind games how the one percent manipulate our understanding of what's happening what's right and what's possible by our guest roy idelson roy thank you very much for coming on talk nation radio tremendous pleasure david thank you so much Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.